Psalm 119, but we're going to do something a little different this morning. Psalm 119 has 176 verses in it, and so uh, having been in the church, having preached since 2009, I've never heard a sermon just on Psalm 119. Typically two routes happen. One, it's so long that it just gets skipped over. And number two, people have about a six to 12 week sermon series on Psalm 119. However, I've never heard just one sermon on the whole thing. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. So instead of me sitting here reading all 176 verses, we're gonna do what's called a survey of this chapter. The survey is going to be broken into five very small, succinct points and you're going to see all these scripture references on the screen. So my encouragement is, uh, once we finish today, take these five points, and then my challenge is to go back this week and just read Psalm 19 from start to finish. A lot of the books in the Bible were meant to be read in one sitting. So I know in my life it's easy to just read sections at a time, but there's also something powerful in reading large swaths of the Bible, particularly whole books and chapters at one time. So, we're going to get out of our normal rhythm of just taking one section or one chapter. We're going to take a whole big chunk and look at it from a very high level. Are y'all with me? Alright, good. Let me pray for us before we dive in, and then we're going to be all over Psalm 119 for a few minutes this morning. Let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, as Psalm 119 tells us, your word is a lamp unto our feet and light unto our path. There's so much rich beauty uh, in your word, particularly in this chapter, that uh, it would uh, behoove us, Lord, to spend many weeks in this. I pray, Father, that uh, my words today from your text would uh, inspire us to want to spend time in your word more and more. That you would elevate our delight in who you are and what you've done in our lives, so much so that we want to hear you speak to us through your word. I pray this morning as the chief of sinners, Father, that you would forgive me of my sins, that we would see Jesus in him only that you would be made much of, and that you would uh, remove me from uh, this uh, morning and bring yourself and your bride together. Uh, help me to do that for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Robert Morgan tells a story of extreme danger and surprising faithfulness through the life and times of Harriet Tubman. She is uh, quite ubiquitous throughout our culture as one who uh, freed slaves, and she did so under a lot of distress and danger. Uh, biographers have called her uh, uh, a Moses figure. Technically, that was her nickname, that she was bringing people from slavery into freedom, very similar to how Moses did this as well. The biographer talks about um, her life growing up, but also how as a professing Christian, she took her daily tasks and uh, view them through the lens of God's word and God's power. So in seasons of good and bad, uh, probably more bad than good, uh, if you read this biography, you would see uh, a strong, calm character and trust in Jesus. She would do various things like this. Listen to what it says. Um, she says, I prayed all the time. I prayed about my work everywhere as I was talking to the Lord. So when I went to the horse trough to clean my face, I took water in my hands and said, Oh Lord, wash me and make me clean. When I took up the towel to dry my face and hands, I cried, Oh Lord, for Jesus' sake, wipe away all my sins. When 
I took up the broom and began to sweep, I groaned, O Lord, whatsoever sin there be in my heart, sweep it out, Lord, clear and clean. You see, what Harriet was doing is what David is doing through Psalm 119. She is, and David, are taking their lived experience and are running it through the lens of God's Word, watching it tear and shape and mold their day in and day out life. Now, I mentioned Psalm 119 is 176 verses, so what kind of mnemonic device can I do to help us memorize this text? We have five points, and they're going to read uh, in this beautiful acronym. Y'all just wait, all right? Five points. It's in your app and your sermon outline as well. Trusting, all right? Studying, using, delighting, and obeying. Trusting, studying, using, delighting, and obeying, which famously spells tsudo. All right? Y'all always remember that. I'm just kidding. Now, to be a cheesy pastor, uh, do y'all remember when Words were, with Friends was really popular on everybody's app, right? You would play with basically Scrabble, but digitally. Did you know there's a way to cheat? And you can go and download an app and put in your words, and it will unscramble them for you and help you beat your opponents. I didn't realize that. However, I took the T-S-U-D-O and scrambled it out to see what words popped up. And one word popped up, it was doubts, D-O-U-T-S, not doubts like you're doubting something. But to doubt something is to extinguish a fire. And I was like, oh man, I could be super cheesy and have this thing talking about extinguishing the fires of life. However, my brain was there, but for your sake, I didn't go there. But we're going to stick to the boring outline and just follow it as God's allowed us to do with pseudo, T-S-U-D-O. Alright? Now, let's talk about T. Trustworthy. For God's word to be life, which is the whole title of this sermon, for God's word to be life, it must be trustworthy. So let's see throughout the text the trustworthiness of God's word. In verse 151, David writes that all of God's commandments are true. Verse 66, he says that he believes in them. In verse 42, he trusts God's word to be reliable against those who taunt him. And then in verse 60, towards the end of the chapter, he writes, The sum of all of God's words is truth. Now, trustworthiness in the Bible is foundational because... If God's word at any point is unreliable or contradictory or uh, inaccurate, we should uh, be very concerned. However, God's word is both infallible and it's also inerrant. This means that God's word not only doesn't contain error, but God's word is unable to contain error because it's divinely inspired by God himself. Now, this is foundational because if that's not the truth, then we are building our lives upon sand. But because God's Word has tested uh, the tested time, it's tested uh, all kinds of evaluation, it's still uh, standing to be trustworthy, it's good to know that the Bible is worthy to build our lives upon. Even better than that, God's Word is 100% reliable in the things that it teaches, especially the way of salvation. Now, there are things in the Bible that are hard to understand. There are things in the Bible that kind of rub us raw, that are very challenging to our culture. The good news is, despite all of that, 
how sinners can be saved is very easily understandable from Genesis to Revelation. That's called the perspicuity of Scripture. Some things are easier to understand than others, and the good news for us is that this is God's Bible uh, baby talk to us, and in this baby talk, he makes it very, very simple to understand how sinners can be made right with God. There's a story about uh, a pastor, a uh, theologian, scholar, his name was R.C. Sproul. Uh, he has a ministry uh, down in South Florida. He's since past ministry still going on. One of my favorite stories that R.C. shared was that uh, there was a young atheist that came to meet R.C. And uh, she challenged him and said that, uh, how can you believe the Bible with hundreds and hundreds of contradictions in it? R.C. just listened and he said, how about this? Take two weeks, I want you to write down every uh, contradiction that you believe in the Bible, we'll come back together and then we'll walk through every single one of these together. Two weeks went by, he didn't hear anything. She showed up for their time to meet together again and she said, I thought there would be hundreds. She said, but after studying and, and reading the Bible, she thinks that there was four. And R.C. and this girl over lunch, they looked at the four contradictions and it boiled down to that there actually wasn't a contradiction she was just new to reading the Bible and understanding uh, different things and different categories from the Bible. And the issue was that R.C. said the challenge wasn't with the Bible, but it's with our knowledge of the Bible. And this is called the noetic effect of sins. And it's from a Greek word that means notitia, knowledge. Sin has affected our ability to be able to even understand the Bible as God has laid it out to me. So, you'll hear me say regularly, because of the nomadic effects of sin, we should always doubt our doubts. We should question our doubts. We should say, God's word is true in what it says, and let me be brought up to its standard versus vice versa. But it doesn't do away with the fact that there's stuff in the Bible that's hard. There's things that are hard to understand. But... What that does is it speaks more to our fallenness than it does to God's credibility. So the challenge for us then is to spend time in God's words, to take our doubts, to question our doubts, and let God's word examine our lives because it's like iron sharpening iron, the Bible tells us. And to do that, you have to get some rough edges knocked off. And I guarantee if we survey people in here who've been reading the Bible for longer than I've been alive, I guarantee that they would say there's parts of the Bible that still uh, are working out those hard parts in their lives. So, David trusts the Bible. But because of that trust, it brings him into studying the Bible, which is our second point. So, trusting and studying. And we see studying in verse 73. David says he learns God's word. In verse 155, he seeks after God's word. In verse 153, he memorizes God's word. We're learning that God's word is what David is meditating on. And this should be a natural step from trusting God's word. You see, since God's word is true, then we should do everything in our power to, to let that truth wash over us and to change us. It begs the question, why? Here we say things, but why should we do this? One reason amongst many is that the Bible has a way of engaging not only our emotions, but our intellect. You see, we're right brain, left brain people. We have emotions and we have logic. And the Bible speaks to both of those. 
The Bible helps us to uh, remind our emotions that they don't lead us, that truth and logic leads our emotions, but our emotions are valid. And emotionally, the Bible grabs us and tells us how we can be in a loving relationship with God, but the truth dictates that we submit to Jesus, that we trust Him, and that we allow His life to cover ours, and we can't earn that. So, to neglect, as particularly as a Christian, to neglect to study God's Word, but to trust in Jesus, is similar to driving your car and then the oil light coming on. And then instead of just recognizing the indicator that it's time for change, you just cover it up with a piece of black tape and you keep going on about your life. You're 15,000 miles over an oil change, you can't see any uh, things happening, but you start to notice smoke barely from the engine. You can't get to work, the car blows up, and then you have it towed to Firestone. And they say, well, what happened to your car? He said, oh, no, just drive it. It just broke down. And then they removed the tape, and they're like, well, you're 20,000 miles over oil change. Your car has absolutely blown up because you aren't listening to the internal indicators that you need a refreshment. That's what studying God's Word does for us. This life is chaotic. Relationships are broken. Our vocations are broken. Our minds aren't uh, functioning the way that God created them. And so God draws us by His Spirit into His Word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this quote. He was a, a famous theologian uh, in God's church on World War II, and he says this, Because I am a Christian, therefore, every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's Word and Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the Word of God, and, as a Christian, I learned to know the Holy Scriptures in no other way than by hearing the Word preached and by prayerful meditation. So, church, this is a challenge to myself, to all of us. There's going to be days where we don't feel like reading God's Word. There's going to be seasons where life is difficult, where decisions are paralyzing, where you're between a rock and a hard place, Regularly, where you just don't feel like picking this word up. Despite the feeling, the truth remains. God's word is a lamp and light and direction for us, not only to teach us how to live this life, but it's God's communication to us. So let the creator of all life speak life into you, even starting with just a verse. So just a verse. And praying that back to God and being honest in prayer and saying, Father, life is hard. It's hard to pray right now. It's hard to read right now. He already knows your heart. Just don't fake it. Bring it to him and let him speak to you through his word. All right. We've already made it through two. Let's go to three. So not only does David trust and start studying the word of God, but he uses God's word during good and bad times. We'll see in verse 24, he calls God's word a counselor. In verse 28, he says God's word is a source of strength. He says in verse 50 that it's a comfort in affliction. And famously, I've already referenced in 105, he says the word is a lamp to his feet and a light to his path. In verse 156, he even says God's word is his source of life. God's word is his source of life. Hebrews 4.12 picks up on this, and it says the Word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the core of us and the intentions of our hearts. You see, just like Hebrews and just like these verses, David is teaching the exact same thing about God's Word. It's alive. And if you've been in the church and you've heard that God is living and active, what does that really mean? What does that mean? Like, these words aren't holograms that come to life, but God, through His Spirit, gave us this Word, okay? And at the point you become a Christian, God's Spirit dwells in you. So what happens beautifully when you, as a Christian, read God's Word, no matter the season that you're in, the same Spirit that inspired these words dwells in you, and the Spirit connects God's Word and God's presence to you in your life. This is why you can read verses of Scripture. Some of you may have read Psalm 119 a hundred times. But I've even talked to people in this church that have said, you know, that text, I've read it a bunch, it just hits different during the season. I never knew that angle of that. I never knew that text was saying that. You see, so during different seasons of our life, uh, this word takes on new life and new meaning all the time, depending on what we're going through. Martin Luther famously said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. You see, God's Word is supernaturally alive. And it's active. It speaks to us in different ways and in different seasons. And my encouragement is to go into the Word, no matter your season, and see what it has to say to you. We're going to be preaching through the book of Matthew in the fall. And I'm sure some of you have read through the book of Matthew or have done different studies on Matthew over and over. I've read through that and done that, and I guarantee every time we dive into that text, it's going to change us even more and more. And we're going to have those new epiphanies about the text. That's because the Word is living. D.L. Moody, writing of the supernatural nature of Scripture, writes this. He says, I am glad that there are things in the Bible I do not understand. If I could take up that book and read it as I would any other book, I might think that I could write that book. Now, whatever season you're going through in life, be assured that God's Word is a source of hope and encouragement and direction. Now, you might say, how does it do that? The Bible doesn't tell me which job I should take, which person I should date, which thing I should do. But the Bible, what it does is it gives us a framework for how to think biblically and for how God to speak into our lives through this word and through community who knows this word to be reliable. You see, David relied on God's word during seasons of trial, seasons of blessing, seasons of persecution. Seasons of great time and great stress, and that same word is active and alive for us today, just as it was in David's time. God's word for us is a treasure trove of grace and truth for us, and you will not exalt it. The only thing you can do is just go deeper and deeper into it. So, we just hit the midway point. We get the wiggles out. Right? I'm a former teacher. Let's get about halfway through the lesson, get the wiggles out. Take a deep breath. Alright? So, we've seen David trust, study, and use God's word. Next, he delights. And notice delight comes before obedience. There's the reason. That's why I couldn't do the original 
acronym because obedience comes out of delight. Delight. This word reminds us that God's word isn't just a dense course book. It's not a dense history lesson for us. David has deep love and affection for God's word. He has an emotional bond with God's word because it's God's word for him. We see in verse 159, he loves God's word. In verse 162, he rejoices in God's word. In verse 18, he calls God's word wondrous. He says in verse verse 72, God's word is better to him than thousands of gold and silver pieces, and it's sweeter to him than honey. In verse 103. Now, sometimes God's word, even if you're not going through stressful seasons, can feel like I'm just clocking in for the day. This is just my standard duty. I need to do this. And I'm just making it through my morning devotionals and prayer. But for David, he loved spending time in God's word because it's where he got to engage with the living God. And he's able to find out what God is actually like. Too often, we judge God based on our surroundings. Too often we judge God's goodness based on the fallenness of this world. And a lot of times when people come to me and they're frustrated with God, even when I get like this myself, people say, well, what does God's word say? We can't judge God based on the fallen people around him. We need to judge God for who he is revealed in his text. And what that does is help us to love him more and have grace for all the brokenness around us. Some of you might know about me that um, back in 2008 through 2012, uh, I was a part of the Gideon's International Ministry. And the Gideon's Ministry is typically uh, businessmen who are not uh, ordained in ministry, but they distribute Bibles on college campuses and in hotels and in doctor's offices. You'll see uh, those Bibles in the drawers. Um, Part of that ministry is they do Bible distribution. And since 2008, I started preaching in prison cells. And in those prison cells, we would hand out Bibles. And another thing we would do was speak to raise funds for Bible distribution around the world. Uh, During my time, uh, one of my favorite stories about these Bible distributions was uh, a group of uh, retired businessmen were out in rural China. And they were specifically going to a region where uh, they had gotten reports that there was not a Bible for a village for hundreds of miles. And a lot of the Chinese Christians in China live in rural areas. And so uh, this Bible distribution came with 600 Bibles, and weeks before they arrived, uh, news went out across the countryside, and villagers for hundreds of miles were showing up, and when they arrived into town, there was an actual parade, and people were celebrating. And they were coming up exhausted, uh, retired. You can imagine how um, how much energy it took to get to that point. They handed out 600 Bibles within minutes. And the people around there said that they had been praying for decades to get a Bible in their language. That they would have one Bible per village and people would sign up to come and read the Bible and copy it and take it back home with them. Now, I don't share this story to convict us. It should humble us that we have God's word readily available in every format we could ever imagine. But my encouragement for us is to ask that God would give us a love for his word like David has in Psalm 119. That our brothers and sisters in rural parts of China have right now for God's word. And I pray that God would stir that delight in us because 
Delight is going to precede our faithful obedience. And obedience is the last point here. So, all of these four points are leading up to obeying God's word. And David repeatedly shared his desire in verse 8 to keep the law in verse 8. To live and keep God's word in verse 17. And verse 44, to keep God's word continually for his entire life. Verse 55, day and night. Now, where is obedience going to come from? Obedience is not going to come from you thinking you need to work really hard to make God happy. That's what we experience in our proximate relationships with family members and parents who raised us and uh, relationships around us. In Christ, through faith, what God does is he sees you as he would see Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus, he covers you. And so the lens that God looks at you through is one where you are covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Now, oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's phenomenal. But let's not forget to neglect the fact that Jesus lived his entire life trusting, studying, obeying, applying, fulfilling all the law of God's word. That's important because when you put your faith in Jesus, his life of perfection covers you. That means, like David, you can obediently seek to serve God, not out of uh, obedience to earn his love, but you serve it out of delight, knowing that he's forgiven you and loves you in Jesus. Do you all get that distinction? Obedience isn't going to come from trying to earn God's love, but it's a response to God's love for you in Jesus. And so you can't have obedience without delight, without knowing God's word, without studying God's word, without applying God's word, without trusting God's word. You see where the acronym is building. So we should pursue obedience like David, who on one hand stepped up in faith to kill Goliath, and in sin stepped up and killed Bathsheba's husband. Right? He was a flawed and broken man who delighted to see and know and obey God's word even in the most broken way that he could express. He was a debtor of grace. That same grace that saved him through the Old Testament, through sacrificing lambs and burnt offerings and covering them with the blood, that was all looking forward to Jesus. His faith was in Jesus. He just didn't know who Jesus was yet. But he knew that there would be someone coming from his line that would fulfill all the law, all the prophets, all the Old Testament, every story, and that person was Jesus. He came in David's lineage. Jesus came and fulfilled this word perfectly, lived it out, and died as though he had broken every one of those commandments. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is able to give us his life, his obedience, and God's love and delight, and simultaneously take on our sin. So that we can be forgiven. Jesus trusted this word. And think about Jesus' life. All this culminated throughout our experiences with him in the Gospels. But notice when Jesus was tempted, far beyond what we can imagine in the wilderness, tempted with, I think probably the worst part of the temptation was knowing where his life was heading at the cross. And Satan said, I can give you another way to get out of that. And Jesus still went through with this. He says in Matthew 4, uh, in this wilderness temptation, he says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus trusted in God's word, knowing that he needed it just as much as he needed food and shelter. 
That's not allegorical, y'all. We are body and soul. America, uh, with our faith, we tend to separate the body and soul. And we treat the body, but we neglect the soul. What we're learning with Jesus is that we are body and soul. Just as much as we need food and shelter and shower so we don't stink, we need God's Spirit in us so we don't spiritually stink as well. We need God's grace in us to help build us up and to change us, and our soul needs nourishment. Jesus, in coming and fulfilling all this, he never even denied the power of it. Here, Jesus' high view of God's Word in Matthew 22. He said, out of obedience, he calls us to love the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. These two commandments depend on the law and the prophets. Jesus summarized the entire law and prophets in his life, death, and resurrection. And out of that grace and love of what Christ does for us, he tells us to do the same. Albeit extremely imperfectly. But the good news is the same grace that saves you is going to be the grace that sustains you through the good and through the bad. And if Jesus, being fully God and fully man on earth, needed God's word just as much as he needed food and shelter, how much more so do we need it? We are not powerful. We are not very we are not all-knowing. We are broken. And the older I get, the more I realize that we're just making it till we make it. I'm still learning how to be an adult. If Jesus needed God's word to sustain him, how much more do we need it? With the complexity of our relationships, the culture that we live in, the sin in our heart, the brokenness of our relationships, the pressure to perform and succeed, every turn, how much more do we need God's word to strengthen us, to overflow us into beautiful obedience? I close with a story uh, from the book Walking in the Dust of Rabbi Jesus. Uh, Louis Tober tells the story about how there's this first century rabbi named Rabbi Akiva. And one day as uh, Akiva was shepherding his flocks, he noticed that there was a small stream that was running down the hillside. And at the bottom of the hill, there was this massive boulder. And after sitting there and looking at it for a few minutes, he started to notice that in this massive boulder, there was this uh, huge formation out of the middle of it where this water was just running down, dripping ever so slightly. And he says this, if water can do this to hard rock, how much more can God's word carve away into my heart stone? You see, what he was drawing out was that if the, the water had flowed over the rock all at one time, it would have just left the rock slippery. But because of that slow drip, day after day, week after week, century after century, even that hardened boulder was eroded by this beautiful, small stream of water. Now, uh, Tober comments this way, uh, way better than I can say it. She said, when I first started studying the Bible's Hebraic context, meaning the Old Testament Hebrew language, I wanted one commentary that would teach me everything, one class that would explain it all. If I could learn all the right answers in one marathon event, all the better. I find now that God likes to reveal truth over many years as I study alongside others. I realize now that big splashes aren't usually God's way of doing things, 
Instead, through the slow drip of study and prayer, day after day, year after year, he shapes me into what he wants us to be. Now, if you've known me for any time, you know that I take things in spectrums. Alright, I try not to be as black and white, else uh, my brain wants everything to be in nice categories. So, if you're here this morning on one side of the spectrum, and you're here because you're trying to impress somebody or somebody guilted you to be here, I know that. I did that for years as a kid. I was the bad kid that never got to hang out with anybody or go on dates with girls unless I went to church. Like, I was that terrible kid who would just sit there and eat Altoids as fast as I can to see how many I could eat. I get your lot in life. If you're here, my encouragement would be to pick up God's Word and study. You have got to get to a place where you can do away with the truth claims of the Bible because this small book has changed the face of human history. You need to do something with the truth claims of Christianity. So this is my call to take up the intellectual pursuit to argue this away. And I don't want you to do it alone. I will meet with you. You can meet with me. We can read through this together. For those of you who are here, I encourage you who want to learn more about the Bible, this is called the ESV Study Bible. This is a phenomenal book. This is kind of like an encyclopedia of the Bible. But it takes the Bible and it adds all kinds of articles and explanations and each verse is explained in here. And I'm a little bit biased because some of the professors that uh, were contributing to this Bible were the same professors that Pastor Keith and I have in seminary. So I love this Bible. I turn to it regularly for understanding. Now, if you're here and you're walking with Jesus and your walk is sweet and rich and your life is just full of God's grace, he fills you with that grace not to keep it to yourself but to share it with others. Find other people in your life where you can bring them along with you and overflow that grace into their lives by getting with them and reading the Bible with them, praying, caring for them. My point is no matter where you are today, God's Word is here. God's Word is alive. And it's here to comfort you and to strengthen you and to remind you that your sin is incredible. But His grace and His love for you through the work of Jesus is far greater than what you can ever do. Can't earn it. It's been earned by Jesus, who on the cross said, "It is finished." God's word is ultimate freedom for us, because this book reminds us that God loves you so much. God loves you so much that if you never change, He would still love you perfectly. But He loves you too much to leave you the same. Put me to the test. Find that in the text. Let me pray. Jesus, your word constantly exfoliates, reveals truth, um, gives us encouragement, humbles us, gives us direction for life. Ultimately, God, this is how you want us to understand you. You've given us your word, you've given us your creation to understand you. And oftentimes we try to discern you through creation more than your word. I'm guilty of that, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would elevate our love of your word, that you would give us a hunger and a strength and even a conviction, Father, to spend time in your word. Um, Father, your word is not broken. We are. And I pray that you would mend us together individually, as a church, as a city, state, nation, and world around you to trust you, to love you with all of our hearts, all mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Because one day we're going to do 